But the book of Proverbs, Proverb 1, and uh, last week I believe we looked or read the first seven verses, and I want to read the rest of the chapter here this morning, understanding that the rest of the chapter here is based upon verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's the basis for the rest of this uh, chapter, and Solomon is writing it as a father writes to his son. Verse 8 down through verse 33. My son, hear the instruction of your father and do not forsake the law, law of your mother. For they will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious possessions. We shall fill our house, houses with spoil. Cast in your lot among us. Let us all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Surely in vain a net is spread in the sight of any bird. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They lurk secretly for their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. Wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open square. She cries out in the chief concourses at the opening of the gates in the city. She speaks her words. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning and fools hate knowledge. Turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. But because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terrors, terror comes. When your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel and despise my every rebuke. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. For the turning away of the simple will slay them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. Proverb chapter 1, verses 8 through 33. Now with your Bibles out, go ahead and turn to the book of Acts. Our message today comes from Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25. We are quickly coming to the end of our study in the book of Acts. And there's only really three more major sections in this uh, particular book of the Bible. Uh, the next section, the next major section, is going to be Paul having one more conversation in Caesarea. That's in chapter 25 through the end of chapter 26. Then we'll see in chapter 27, Paul's journey to Rome. And finally, in chapter 8, we'll see Paul's arrival at Rome. And that's where it ends, Paul in uh, Rome. 
So there's three major sections, and I'm, I'm not going to suggest that that only means three sermons. Uh, but it's, it is three more uh, major sections for us to uh, consider. But this morning, we're at the beginning of chapter 25. We're looking at the first 12 uh, verses here. And uh, so not too many verses to consider this morning. Let me read through this passage here and uh, just get our, our minds around what's happening here. It says in verse 1 of chapter 25, Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him, Paul that is, to Jerusalem, while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered, that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought in. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or committed anything deserving death, I do not object to dying, but if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. Uh, have ever, any of you ever been in a restaurant or a store or been on the phone with a business? And you're not getting anywhere with the person you're dealing with. And so you say, can I see the manager? Can I talk to the manager? And when we do this, what are we doing? We are appealing to a higher power. We're trying to go up the next rung of the ladder and seeking satisfaction for something. And in our passage today, Paul is going to appeal to the absolute highest earthly power. He's going to appeal to Caesar. Now, up to this point of time, Paul has been in the hands of local or regional rulers. However, now, as he is before Festus, and things seem to be going nowhere quickly, or maybe even possibly taking a step back, He's going to go to Caesar. He's making his appeal to Caesar. And this ratchets the importance of this passage up one notch. Uh, Paul is now taking his case from a backwater, troublesome province now to the capital of the then civilized world, Rome itself. And as Paul does this, it's, it's good for us to remember that Paul is still sitting in a sort of minimum security prison as he has been for the past two years, of which we know almost nothing about. And so as we look at this passage this morning, I want us to see and think about the progress that is made in leading Paul 
to appeal to Caesar? How does, uh, how does the story flow that leads to Paul appealing to Caesar? So first of all, I want us to notice in verses 1 through 3, the first part of this process involves a change in judges. A change in judges. We see this in verses 1 through 3. Actually, if you would, look back at the last verse of, verse, uh, of chapter 24, verse 27. Let me just pick it right there at verse 27. But after two years, Porcius Festus succeeded Felix. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Now, verse 1 of chapter 25. Now, when Festus had come to the province, after three days, he went up to Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priests and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him, that, uh, that Festus would summon Paul to Jerusalem. Now, I want us to stop there. Just stop right there. That is the end of their request. Now we're going to hear about what they were thinking. Okay? So the end of verse 3. While they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. So they weren't asking Festus to be complicit in the ambush of Paul. That's not the favor they're asking. They're asking if Paul could be judged by them in Jerusalem. So the first thing I want us to notice under this heading, the change of judges, that Festus replaces Felix as procurator of Judea. And so probably the most difficult thing we're going to find in this passage is that we have two men whose names both start with F and we have to keep them distinguished. <laughs> Get Felix and Festus. Felix comes first, then there's Festus, and so uh, that's probably the hardest thing to get in this passage is to keep those two men, uh, their names correct. And so as we think about this change of judges, uh, it's natural for us to think, well, what happened to Felix? What happened to Felix? And, and this is going to be very important because it, it leads up to not only what happens to Paul, but some of the stuff we're going to see here that we know from history that, that is underneath, if we can put it that way, the text of Scripture here is actually going to be important for the history of Israel, even fulfillment of prophecy. So what happened to Felix? Why the change of judges from Felix to, to Festus? Well, uh, Felix' time as procurator did not simply run out. His, his term in office did not just naturally end. He got in trouble and he had to go to Rome to stand trial. That's how much trouble he had to go stand before Caesar. But his very influential and powerful big brother a man named Paulus got him off the hook. And so we can ask the question, well, what was it that got Felix in so much trouble? Well, during Paul's two years of imprisonment in Caesarea, there was great turmoil in the city of Caesarea between the Gentiles, the Greeks, and the Jewish population. The point of contention was that while the Gentile population was far more numerous than the Jews, the Jews had special privileges that they had been granted because Herod the Great is the one who founded the city. And Herod was a ruler of the Jews. And so the Jews had special privileges beyond what the Greeks would normally have. And so we have this tension between the Jews and the Greeks, and as Felix is involved, he gets involved on the side of the Greeks and is brutal against Israel, against the Jews. And of course, that's one of the things we know about Felix. He's a brutal guy. He can be bribed, and he's a brutal guy, and we see that from history right here. Of course, when Felix intervenes and he actually is very severe with the Jews, this doesn't make things better, it makes things worse. So finally, Felix has to send the leaders of both the Jews and the Greeks to Rome for the emperor to settle the case. Now, I want to fill in a little bit of the blanks that uh, isn't exactly clear from history, but this is probably what happened when Felix gets to Rome and sees the emperor, 
uh, it is judged that Felix did not act judiciously in his treatment of this problem and that he didn't act in the best interest of the empire. And therefore, he was relieved. It also seems apparent that Felix's relief from his duties was because of such a serious charge, so serious a charge, that his brother had to intervene so he wouldn't suffer a much, much greater punishment than just merely being relieved of his duty. And so what I want us to understand here is that during the time of Paul's imprisonment in Caesarea is that the city is not peaceful. It's an unrest. The Jews and the Gentiles were at each other. And this is why Festus now comes on the scene as the new procurator. And a quick aside here, we should also understand that this trouble in Caesarea didn't get any better after Paul went to Rome. In fact, it got worse, worse after Paul was sent to Rome because when the Jews and the Greeks of Caesarea went to Rome and they presented their case to the emperor, the emperor ruled in favor of the Greeks. And so this effectively, uh, create, this effectively made all the special privileges that the Jews of that city had enjoyed null and void. They're no longer valid. So the Jews had enjoyed these special privileges and now they don't exist anymore. And the Greeks, instead of being uh, uh, benevolent and magnanimous in victory, what they actually did is they turned around and they rubbed it in the face of the Jewish community, even committing acts of religious persecution. These acts of religious persecution, however, were, were acts that were, the Jews were protected from by Roman law. Empire-wide, the, the Jews were not allowed to be persecuted because of their religious beliefs. However, the Greeks here persecuted the Jews with impunity. Now, what's the big deal about this? Because it is the mistreatment of the Jews in Caesarea that will, in part, lead to the Jewish revolt of AD 66. The Jewish revolt of AD 66 culminates in the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. That is a fulfillment of prophecy. Daniel chapter, uh, chapter 9. And so what is happening here in Caesarea is very much an important part of our understanding of the biblical history. And so let's go back and we're going to focus back in on our passage this morning. So we have this change in judge, judges. Uh, Festus replaces Felix. We don't know much about Festus at all. He becomes the procurator of Judea sometime after AD 57. Probably the fall of AD 60 is exactly when our passage is taking place. And he, as it was true of all procurators, was appointed by the emperor himself. And we know very little else about Festus, but what little we do know is that uh, he did have an ongoing tension with the Jews. This is something that characterizes Festus's uh, reign or his uh, administration in Judea is an ongoing tension among the Jews. And so we see in our passage that after he comes to Caesarea, he goes to Jerusalem. He's only in Caesarea for three days, then he goes to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, we see in verses 2 and 3 that a request by the Jews is made to him for a favor. The Jews are going to request a favor from Festus. And so he gets there, the Jews immediately come up to him. This is the Jewish leadership, and they say, Paul's a bad guy. Do us a favor and uh, send him to Jerusalem for a trial. But, of course, we know from the end of verse 3 
that they are not really interested in trying Paul. They're interested in killing Paul. They want to ambush him on the way. It's sort of like the same plan they had when Paul left Jerusalem. They were going to ambush him. So that, that plan comes back into place. So think about this situation like this. It's been two years. Paul has been two years in prison, and the Jews have not forgotten about him. The Jews still want to get their revenge. They still want to kill Paul, and they're willing to use a Roman procurator, and they're willing to usurp Roman authority to do it. They really hated Paul. And so we see that even with the change of these procurators, the change of judges, Paul's situation really hasn't changed, really hasn't changed at all. He's still in prison, even a minimum security prison, and uh, his, his case isn't going anywhere. But as we come to verses 4 through 6, we see another trial ordered. There's going to be another trial for Paul. Look at verse 4. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Verse 5, therefore he, it's Festus, said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than 10 days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. And so notice, first of all, in verse 4, the answer to the Jews. The answer to the Jewish request is no. Uh, Festus is not going to allow Paul to be brought to Jerusalem for a trial there. But he does allow for another trial, but it's going to be held in Caesarea, not Jerusalem. And so we see in verses 5 and 6 that Paul is going to have to once again stand trial. So it, it, this similar court case would be, um, you know, if there's a trial and, and the trial has to be continued, the prisoner or the accused might be kept confined until the, until the court can meet again. That's the, the idea of what is taking place here. And so Paul's case, Paul's trial has not been over because no one's made a judgment. Felix didn't judge Paul. He didn't pronounce a judgment. And now it falls to Festus to do this. And so this is still Paul's case being heard before the proconsul or the procurator of Judea. And in verses 5 and 6, I want us to see four things about this new trial. Four things to note about this new trial. First, this new trial is not going to include Paul's accusers. Remember, Paul's accusers were the Jews of Asia who believed they saw Paul in the temple with a Gentile. These accusers aren't there. These accusers, are, they haven't been on the scene since that day when there was a riot in Jerusalem. They have disappeared. They're not around anymore, which is odd for a Roman court case. Because one of the things of importance that Romans put on a court case is the accusers being in the court to testify in person of the accusations. So that's a little bit odd. Second thing to notice here, that the, the, the uh, prosecutors will be the leaders of the Jews, those who have authority. Thirdly, the thing we see here about this new trial is that even though Paul is still in prison, the Jews still must prove their case against him. So this is something like innocent until proven guilty. But, but they have to prove that Paul is uh, guilty of the accusations against him. And the fourth thing we see about this trial is it's going to happen 12 days from right now. 12 days from the time that is mentioned here in our passage. So think about this from Festus' perspective. He arrives in Caesarea, his new home for the foreseeable future, his new area of responsibility, and he is there three days. And after three days, he goes to Jerusalem, and he is there for about 11 days. 
And then he returns to Caesarea, and the next day he has a trial for Paul. And so Festus has only been in office, something a little bit over two weeks, and he has a major trial, a major court case to deal with. Now, this court case was not really major in and of itself. It was just Paul's a nobody in the Roman Empire. Um, this, the offense is a no concern of the Romans. But it is major because it involves the Jewish people as a whole, as represented by the Jewish leadership. And remember, the Jews make up a significant portion of the population of Judea. And not only are they a significant uh, portion of the population for which he is responsible for, but the Jews are also some of the most volatile people on the face of the earth and will protest and riot for just about any reason. And the one thing a Roman administrator is not going to stand for is a disturbance of the peace, of breaking the peace. And what are the Jews known for in the Roman world? Breaking the peace all the time. And so this is why this is a major trial for Festus. So the Jews have been plotting and planning. They have been waiting for two years for the right moment to get their revenge on Paul. And they believe that that moment is now on them with this new procurator, Festus. They believe that they can quickly convince Festus to side with them. And we even see this, in, at least it's hinted to, in the idea of them requesting this favor from Festus. It is as if the Jews are saying to Festus, Let's take, let us take this guy off your hands. Uh, you don't want to deal with him. He is our problem, not your problem. Give him to us, and we'll take care of it. We will give him a trial. But, of course, they're not interested in any court case. They're not interested in any trial at all. But Festus, he might have been born at night, but he certainly wasn't born last night. Festus is more clever and wily than the Jews give him credit for, and he doesn't grant that request. He knows what they're asking. He understands what the issues are here. And so we move from this trial, this new trial, or the, the continuance of the trial being ordered to number three in your notes there, verses seven through nine, the prejudice and political maneuvering of Festus. Verse seven, when he had come, that's talking about Festus, the Jews had, who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul which they could not prove. You might want to underline that one. They could not prove. While he, Paul, answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? Now, I want you to notice here, in, in verse 7, we have more baseless accusations. The Jews come in and they're testifying before Festus and they lay out more accusations and more complaints about Paul. But notice the thing they don't do. No proof. No evidence. They offer no evidence. This is exactly what happened in front of Felix. Lots of accusations, but offered no evidence to prove their accusations. And so in verse 8, Paul maintains his innocence, and he maintains his innocence on three levels. Do you see the three levels there in verse 8? The law of the Jews the temple, and Caesar. So you see those three things there. So Paul says, I have not broken any of the law of the Jews. And remember, Paul's an expert in the law of the Jews. He's not only an expert in the Mosaic law, Paul would have had huge portions of the, the Hebrew Bible memorized. 
He was an expert in our Old Testament. He knew it forwards and backwards. He knew all the the arguments and expositions of it. Not only that, he knew all about the traditions that the Jews had added to the Bible. He knew all of that. He was an expert in the law. And the Jews knew that Paul was an expert in the law. They knew when it came down to it, Paul could outlawyer them. So Paul maintains his innocence in face of the law of the Jews. Secondly, the second level of his innocence is seen in that he says, I haven't offended the temple. I didn't do anything to defile the temple. And Paul is claiming innocence here for the direct charge against him of defiling the temple. That's really the only charge. Everything else the Jews have just made up. This is the only charge that has any validity when it comes to Paul's case. And he says he didn't do it. He didn't take a a Gentile into the temple. He did not defile the temple. The The third level of innocence is according to Caesar. It says he hasn't offended Caesar in any way. And Caesar there stands for the Roman law. Caesar is the representative of the Roman law. And Paul says, I have committed no offense against the law of the Jews, against the temple, and I have committed no offense against Caesar. He has not broken any of the Roman laws. And so after Paul makes another statement of his innocence, Festus' mind is running. How am I going to deal with this guy? How am I going to deal with him? I know the Jews have not presented their case. I know that Paul is right. How am I going to handle this situation? And so in verse 9, we see that Festus makes a request. And he asks Paul, hey, Paul, would you be willing if I said pretty please with peanut butter and chocolate on top? To go to Jerusalem, and we can have the court case there. It'll be the same as it was here. I'll be the one who's the judge, but we'll just have it in Jerusalem. That's what we'll do. This is a good idea, Paul. Are you willing to do that? And so what Festus is doing here is he's preserving at least the appearance and perception of due process. He could not simply turn over a Roman citizen the Apostle Paul, to a lower subject class of the Roman Empire. The the Jews were provincial. They were not uh, inherent citizens of the Roman Empire. They were just added in. There's no way that Festus could just turn over a Roman citizen to the Jews. He knew he couldn't do that, but he also wanted to do the Jews a favor. And you know how favors work, right? They work the same way back then as they do today. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. And so Festus here, and wanting to do the Jews a favor, knowing that they they didn't have a case against Paul, he wanted to help them out so that when the right time came, he could use that for his advantage. He wanted to gain political capital. And so Festus asked Paul if he's willing to voluntarily go to Jerusalem for a trial. I can't make you go, but Paul, you know, if you go willingly, man, that solves all of my problems. And so what we find here in these three verses is that Festus, whatever Festus may be, whatever kind of man he may be, he is at his core a politician. And do you know what the number one priority of almost every politician is? To win the next election, right? So as soon as they're elected, their number one goal is to win the next election. It is uh, the interest of self-survival and self-promotion. The same is basically true with first century politicians. They're not really interested and doing what is right. They're interested in advancing their own status and rank. And so Festus, while he is not able to directly turn Paul over to the Jews, 
Nevertheless, he is able to try to outmaneuver Paul by being a politician, by, by playing the role of politician between Jews and a Roman citizen. But you know what? Paul's not playing along. In fact, Paul's got his own little game that he's doing. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to play the trump card. I'm not referring to the last president. So he's going to play his card, his get-out-of-jail-free card, so, so to speak. And so we see in verses 10 through 12 an appeal to a higher power. An appeal to a higher power. Verse 10. So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. In other words, this is the only place that I can be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things, talking about these accusations, of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. So the first thing we see here is that Paul talks about the Roman law court. At the beginning of verse 10, he talks about the Roman law court. And he says, look, I am to be tried in a Roman law court. I'm a Roman citizen. This is taking place in a Roman law court, the judgment seat of Caesar. If I am not found guilty in this court of law, you cannot send me to them. It would be illegal for you to do that. And so we see that Paul again claims his innocence. Again, he emphasizes his innocence at the end of verse 10 into verse 11. He says, I've done nothing wrong concerning the Jews. And in fact, let me tell you, Festus, I'm I'm not against capital punishment for capital offenses. But I have done nothing deserving of death. I'm innocent. And he says, Festus, between the two of us, we know, we know I'm right. You know very well I'm right. And so then Paul appeals to Caesar. Now, it was the privilege of a Roman citizen to have their case heard before Caesar. Even in Paul's day, this right and privilege was ancient. It goes way back in the history of the Romans. Even before they had an emperor, there was this right of appeal. Now, much of this right and exercise of this appeal to Caesar has been lost to time. We just simply don't know much about it, and we don't know how it was used. But there are some things we can piece together. For instance... It was originally an appeal. That means there had to be a judgment, and then you appeal the judgment. So originally, in in court, the magistrate would make a judgment, and you could appeal the judgment, and the appeal would go to the highest authorities. So we know that. We also know this appeal eventually became just invoking the authority of Caesar over your case. This was more of a change of venue. You know, it it happens in court cases all the time where a judge believes that they cannot find an impartial jury in a certain location. So what do they do? Change venues. They change venues where they think they can get an impartial jury. And so this invoking the appeal to Caesar is much, much like that. But we also know this appeal did not... Um, pertain to violations of statutory law. In other words, if it was clear that Roman law had been broke, such as a slave killing a master or free man, you couldn't appeal. You couldn't make an appeal because it's clear you violated the law there. And number four, we know this appeal only applied to Roman (coughs) citizens. Only to Roman citizens. Now, here's the thing. Here is the real interesting thing about Paul's appeal to Caesar. 
Who is Caesar at this time? Nero. Nero, one of the worst Roman emperors in history. Nero is the Caesar. Why would Paul appeal his case to Nero, a man who had thousands of Christians murdered? That doesn't make sense, does it? Well, it doesn't make sense unless you know a little bit about history. And all of this stuff we know that I'm about to tell you is from history, and I'm going to condense it. The second half of Nero's reign is when he was illogical, unreasonable, brutal, and some say even insane. It's in the second half of his reign that there was the Great Fire of Rome, July 64, the Great Fire of Rome. And uh, Nero did not set that fire. He had nothing to do with causing that fire. But the people blamed Nero because he tweeted the wrong things too much. Okay? He, he, he was tweeting too much. And so he got the blame, and the people were focused on old Nero. And what did Nero do to deflect the attention from himself? He blamed the Christians. He blamed the Christians. And he didn't just say the Christians... Uh, uh, set the fire that really wasn't the claim he just said they're not you know they're below human standard they're not they're not good people right they're not the kind of people we want in our town is really what he said and so he had thousands and thousands of christians killed and uh, finally nero dies on july 9th 68 by his own hand with a little bit of help But that's the second half of Nero's reign. The first half of Nero's reign, the half of his reign in which our account appears in, is connected to, is often referred to as a miniature golden age of the Roman Empire. So Nero and his reign, the the two halves of it, were diametrically opposed from each other. The first half was great. The second half was terrible, not just for Christians, but for everybody. It was a terrible time to be in Rome in the second half of Nero's reign. And so when Paul appeals to Caesar, he's appealing to Nero, and he has every right to believe he would receive an impartial hearing based upon Roman law. Because at this time, the emperor was doing well. He was ruling well. And we see in verse 12 that Festus agrees with this. Festus confers with his council. Then he confirms Paul's decision to appeal to Rome. That's why he asks a question here. At the end of verse 12, he asks this question. You have appealed to Caesar or have you appealed to Caesar? The answer there is going to be yes, And so now he pronounces his approval. To Caesar you shall go. The stage is set now for the next saga in in Paul's life. And that's going to be his travels to Rome. We're not going to get there right yet. We've got one more thing to do. But that's what's coming up. He's going to be sent to Rome. Now, have you ever considered the fact that believers, as believers, when... Confronted with trials and tribulations of life. We don't have to go through the process of appealing to the next power and to the next power and to the next power. We don't have to go through the court system like the Apostle Paul had to go through. We have an immediate and permanent access to the highest power, not just the highest earthly power, but the highest power of all, God the Father. Not just Caesar, not just the President of the United States. We have access to God himself. We have the privilege of prayer. The privilege of prayer. How did we get this privilege? It is a privilege that we receive. It is, it's a privilege that's given to us. We didn't do anything to get it. It's not a subscription that we have to renew. We don't pay for it. 
It was provided through Jesus Christ. It was granted to you when you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. When through Jesus Christ you were made citizens of heaven. Paul was a citizen of Rome. He could appeal to Caesar. We are citizens of heaven. We get to appeal to God the Father. How do we use this privileged access that we have? How do we use it? Do we use it as the last resort when all lesser means have failed? Is that how we use the privilege of prayer? Well, nothing else has worked. Now I'm going to pray. This is out of my control. I'm going to pray. Certainly, when things are out of control, what do we do? We pray. I'm sure when we all heard that Jerry, and he came in here a little bit late, when we heard that Jerry had a heart attack, what did we do? Prayed. Many of us stopped right then and prayed because it was obvious. We have no control. He has no, Jerry has no control over this. This can only be addressed by God. And it's not wrong to pray as a last resort. One of the great things about God is even when we pray as a last resort, he still hears our prayer. But why do we pray so often as a last resort? Why is it that we wait to take our cares and our concerns to God, even our daily lives? Why do we wait to exercise this privilege that we have to appeal to the living God, the God of the universe? Well, I think there's two reasons. It is spiritual dullness because of sin and spiritual dullness because of immaturity. Our spiritual dullness because of sin might, well, it is because of sin sometimes. When we as believers sin, we're breaking fellowship with God. And while we don't need to fear losing our salvation because God has made a promise about that, we do lose the blessing of fellowship with God. Have you ever sinned against someone? I mean, really sinned against someone. So if you're married, I'll just assume you have. Okay? But when we sin against someone, it's not like you can just go on having a conversation as normal, can you? There is a breach in the fellowship. The same thing is true of God. When we as believers sin, there's a breach in our fellowship with God. And it's very hard for us to then go to God in prayer. Oftentimes, the reason we don't pray, we don't go to God, appeal to the God of the universe, is because of our spiritual dullness and immaturity. You know, one of the things about the Christian life that we realize is that we start as immature Christians and we are supposed to progress to mature Christians. And part of that is learning to trust God more and more and more and more. Not just with the big things in life, but with the everyday things in life. In fact, James chapter 4 verse 15 says we are to trust God with our business dealings. Day-to-day -day things of life, we are to entrust God. To God, And that is often indicated in our prayer life. But God uses our dullness, our lack of understanding, our lack of trust in him to teach us something. He teaches us that even when we come to him late, even when we use him as a last resort, he listens. He answers prayer. And so we should learn to trust him more and more, certainly more than any human effort we can muster. In this earthly realm, we may very well one day have to appeal to a higher power. But even in that, if we are exercising our privilege of prayer, which is our possession and inheritance as sons and daughters of the living God, we have appealed to the highest power who knows everything, who is everywhere, who is all-powerful, 
And so let me ask you, are you appealing to God in prayer? Have you appealed to God for the peace of Jerusalem like we did this morning? With all this is happening in Jerusalem. Have you appealed to God for your daily needs? Have you appealed to God for your specific needs? Well, I think God sometimes takes pleasure in being used as a last resort because there's no other way or better way he can, can express himself as being the one true powerful God. He doesn't just want us to treat him as a rescue valve, as a relief valve, as a last resort. God wants to meet our daily needs. Remember probably the most famous prayer in the Bible. Give us this day our daily bread. An appeal to God to meet our everyday needs. And so let's appeal to the highest power of the universe, the living God, the true God, not only for the big issues in our life, but let's also appeal to him for the day-to-day circumstances of our life, from the smallest things that happen in our day to the greatest. Would you stand with me? We'll close in a word of prayer. Father, we give thanks for this activity we are now engaged in and the privilege of prayer. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the Apostle Paul and his obedience to you. And Lord, we're even thankful for a lesson that we can learn about prayer and seeing how Paul appealed to Caesar, knowing that we have no greater person to appeal to than you yourself and that you have uh, given this privilege to us that we can access you through our Lord and Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the privilege of prayer. Thank you for the privilege of appealing to you not with just the big things, not with just the heavy things, but with the daily things. We're so thankful that you're concerned about our day-to-day lives. Lord, help us to be a people of prayer. Convict our hearts about this matter, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.